Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, everyone. This is Alfred, and welcome to Punching Out. I have two guests in the studio today. I have Johnny. Say hello, Johnny. Hi. Hi. And I have Charlotte. Hi, everyone. Oh, Charlotte, you've got to talk louder, Charlotte. <laughs> Don't be all right. There okay, you go. Okay, promise. All right. So our our topic today, normally on punching out, we do somewhat irreverent things. Um, this is actually a topic that's actually kind of serious and and pretty much unknown from a lot of our audience. Uh, it's not th- th- this kind of stuff isn't all that common, and it really should be. Um, our topic for today: there is a large amount of the human workforce in America who has intellectual, developmental, or physical disabilities, and finding employment is actually quite difficult. So I guess I'll throw out the first question and one of you can pick it. Um, what's it like today for an adult with a disability to find meaningful or even any employment? I mean, I would say it's difficult. It's difficult for anybody to find a job, <laughs> um, much less a career, especially for folks with developmental disabilities. It's, uh, it's a barrier. I mean, there's all kinds of barriers. Transportation um, is a big one. You know, if you can't drive to and from work, that's a it's a big one. And I would say, you know, we can get into this more uh, later in the show. But what um, what students are leaving school with is really um, a huge predictor in what is kind of available after school. So, you know, I think both of us have done most of our work in New York State. So New York State is is different based on the regulations, um, state ed regulations, and um, kind of the service system that we have. Um, but kids are leaving the school system not necessarily prepared for work. We're trying to get everybody a diploma. Um, and research says if kids aren't getting... Um, work-based type opportunities in high school, the likelihood that they're going to work as an adult is significantly decreased. And I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but but I think that's that's a barrier right off the bat, that if you're leaving school and you don't have any type of work-based experiences and you're entering this adult system that, you know, has a lot of supports, but frankly, it, it, it's not financed at the level that it needs to be to support really robust jobs um, and support over time for some of the barriers that these these people face so I, th- I, uh, I don't know if I answered your question but I just yeah. I, yeah. no yeah, what kind well what kind of let's talk about maybe the kinds of jobs because I, I think uh, there's a you know there's obviously a plethora of things people can do what kind of jobs are what are yeah. what are they getting I think when people think of folks with developmental disabilities they're thinking um, uh, doing things like janitorial work, you know, helping hands at Wegmans, and really the sky is the limit. I think it has to do with how creative the people that are supporting folks with developmental disabilities are um, in searching for a job. So job development, finding the right fit for a person really needs to be tailor fit. And for a long time, it was just, let's have this person apply for a hundred different jobs, menial jobs, and the first one that sticks that's the one that's supposed to be, and that's that's a that's not any that's not a way I would want to work. That's for sure. You know, I don't want to yeah. take a job that I don't enjoy. And that can't be sustainable. 
No. I mean, there must be a lot of turnover. Oh, must yeah, and motivation over time. Person-centered is kind of a word in the field that people are using. So looking at the person and what do they want to do to work because we know if you're not interested in your job, the motivation to show up and do a good job every day is significantly decreased. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, like Johnny was saying, there's there's this job that's available. Let's apply to it. That doesn't work for any person, you know, <laughs> yeah. with a disability or not a disability. And when you ask the question, what kind of jobs, you know, it, it depends on the person's preferences and their backgrounds and what they perceive their strengths to be. So I think this, like like you said, the sky's the limit. Um, but the service system struggles to be creative and keep up with um, meeting people where they're at and what they want to do. And how are employers in this regard? I mean, who are they the obstacle or is there what... I, my experience personally has been that once an employer understands the, the process, um, that they're really receptive. If they have a candidate that's a good fit for a job, um, they're excited because they're filling a, they're filling a need in their mm -hmm. business. Um, I would say there's much more pushback from like an agency side of things um, to change than mm -hmm. to an employer looking for, for something. In, you know, in, and how is needs. how is it in Rochester or in our area? I mean, are we on average, let's say, compared to something maybe nationally or, or even statewide? Are we are we a, a good region? Well, <laughs> and I, you know, we talked about Wegmans and Helping Hands. I think Wegmans is a model employer, and when you talk to them, they talk a lot about you know we want to reflect, we want our workforce to reflect the community that we serve, and they truly live by that. So, you know, I think a lot of the businesses that we have here are are ahead of the curve in terms of hiring. Um, and like Johnny said, it's what does this person bring? What is the job description? Can the person do it, disability or not? You know, they're just looking to fill vacant positions. Um, so I think, you know, you, you can't say there's no stigma that businesses have or fear or anything like that. And sometimes liability concerns or, mm. you know, they want to, you know, what is your agency's certificate of insurance and right. things like that. But really at the end of the day, employers just want a person that's going to show up on time. You know, <laughs> those soft skills that we talk about, like get along with colleagues, those things are really important. And all people struggle with it. <laughs> yes, they do. I'm saying, who does that well? <laughs> I did some like diversity training with employers, um, and that seemed to help coupled with, you know, a position potentially for a person. If like some diversity around just you know, developmental disabilities in general, helping not just the employer, but their coworkers understand, yeah, you might see a job coach, you might see somebody helping this person and that's normal. And really just allowing people to ask questions freely without feeling like they're going to be <coughs> offensive yeah. um, helps clear the air and it makes it a lot easier. It has to be, yeah. Because, yeah. I, I, I mean, I've, I've worked for many years. I've worked for 30-some-odd years in the work world, and I don't recall ever having that opportunity to talk about or ask questions. And that's terrible, but it's also – it's not just terrible because it, it, I wasn't informed or our colleagues weren't, but that forced people to talk then – in that sort of surreptitious yes. way that is usually not the right way to talk about any person <laughs> at all, yeah. right? <laughs> Socialization, um, you know, sometimes, and I work with students sometimes, and I see smaller social networks sometimes or bullying and things like that. So, I mean, the work world is no different than that. So socialization takes time, and but there are supports for that too. So that's, you know... The service system is set up to help people find jobs and keep their jobs, and that includes socialization, too. So some of the people that I've worked with, that's been the main function of their job coaching is how do you get along with colleagues? How do you sit in a lunchroom and have appropriate conversations? Um, because, you know, some of those 
you know, obviously it's dependent on the disability and how you were raised and a million different things, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a job coach worth their salt is, um, that's probably one of the busiest times is during break times is, are, are they helping a person socialize and build bridges? So, um, you know, shared interest, just like you would with any other coworker. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys have any kind of litmus test things where you say like, this is a good indicator that this is working, that they're having an experience that is actually enriching and, and, and beneficial? Or any experience or observations about that? I'm just curious. Anecdotally, yeah. you know, um, one gentleman I supported did get invited, like, for an after-hours thing, and he had, you know, some... He didn't drink, but, you know, while his coworkers were drinking, he was hanging out, and it was a cool, you know, it was a cool experience for him. I would say, by and large, there still is a degree of separation, um, and it's something you've always got to work on to build. Yeah. It takes time, you know. And yeah. I think, you know... When you're an employee and you're hired by the business and you are part of a team, it's a different story than if you're there with a program and like it's an other. So yeah. I think that's kind of that separation. I think, you know, it's not so black and white, but I see it more when it's a program pushing in or, you know, this dayhab pops in for a couple of hours and, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. That's where I see the separation more, you know then this is an employee that's part of the team and maybe they don't like those social situations that much and well, but whatever. There's, so there's this term social reproduction and we talk about social reproduction is everything that happens outside of the work mm-hmm. space. Do they talk about work to the, to the people that you, I mean, do they, and what do they say about work? You know, I think <laughs> Please it's... Please tell me they complain <laughs> a little bit, at least. Certainly. <coughs> Good. Certainly. <Okay. laughs> um, I think it's just as varied as every person. Some people, it's the means to an end. It's a paycheck. Um, for job development, so, you know, really understanding what is somebody's motivation is a central part to, you know, trying to help somebody find a meaningful job. If their motivation is, I want to earn a paycheck, right? I want to have some money in my pocket. They might not really care as much about the meaningful aspects of it, whereas a lot of people, that's what they want to do something very specific, and they draw a lot of meaning out of that yeah. specific task. Charlotte, you've got experience with this. Or you talk to adults or burgeoning young adults getting yeah. into the work world. And I feel like I lived in D.C. for a while, and it was like, hi, what's your name? What do you do? And, like, that's the first question <laughs> that people talk about. Yeah. And so, I mean, <laughs> like we keep saying, I don't, I don't think people with disabilities are any different from the general population. And having, you know, an answer to that question is the the pride that you feel and, you know, having well, having that. I guess I guess where I'm stuck is mm. is before they're in the adult world mm-hmm. because the kinds of and I know this from again with youth, youth and children they're already sort often they're already sort of constrained at an early age to what possibilities there are for careers does that is that pop up as they're adults or they I mean what do you do you see impact uh, effects of that hundred percent I would yeah. say and it's <coughs> multiple stakeholders what are your parents expectations kind of what are your friends around you doing what do teachers think you can do um, and and I always say set the bar high and they're gonna you know and that's true of any single yeah. kid um, so I and I do think you know we talk a lot about inclusion and integration and that's that's so important you know seeing your peers this is what I want to do when I grow up well this is what I want to do when I grow up so I think kind of the segregated off to the side other we've talked a little bit about that too you know a, a local 
Uh, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I experienced working with kids and seeing kids in programs is that the, the intersection of like their parents' expectations, which unfortunately, I, what I heard a lot of, especially in, uh, in like migrant population in particular, where, where disability is, is stigmatized differently mm-hmm. than it is, and, and the expectations for what they could do were, what they, it was as if the parents were extremely kind and optimistic in, this, in the emotional sense, but very like, I wouldn't say almost adversely pragmatic about the choices that they sort of presented and, and the opportunities. I, I can't, so many parents would say things like, well, I'd like, I'd, li- I'd love it if he could do blank, but he's not going to be able to do blank. And I thought, oh. That- well, and there's a lack of plan. I mean, we started talking yeah. briefly about, um, you know, transition. Um, New York State has like this employment first they really want everyone looking towards employment out of high school. Yeah. But if you haven't been working your whole, really, I mean, that starts for a kid at, at yeah. six, seven years old. You start asking <coughs> them and talking about work and what do you want to do for a living and all that. Um, and with this Employment First initiative, there was really this whole crop of kids <laughs> where transition programs hadn't caught up. And so mm. they're, getting out of, they're getting out of school. They don't have the skills that they need really to go to work because they haven't been working on them. Um, and so then you have like these people that really left, like kind of falling through the cracks, not mm-hmm. ready for work, not, um, you know, not sure, thinking they're just going to go to a day hab um, instead of, you know, to sure. a job. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been called a dream crusher before, but, you <laughs> oh. know, it's if you're talking about somebody who might not be leaving school with a diploma, a sur- s- becoming a surgeon might not be what is the, you know, the career trajectory. Becoming a surgeon is not a career trajectory for most of us. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But what is it about that job that this person likes and how can we work through that and have a conversation? So dream crushing is really not what I'm in like the game for, but you know, finding what's your motivation, what are you interested in and and kind of what what is your skill set and how can we find you a job that you love? You know, again with with the youth especially, like one of my goals was always when I helped programs that did like technical assistance, my, my real hope was that they would be provide their their inclusive practices their inclusive environment would set the example that others would follow and that they would actually start looking to them for all students that they would actually see things happening with the way they're engaging students with disabilities that's actually helping change the way they engage students without disabilities and what you were saying reminded me uh, because that ability to sort of think, well, what's important to so and so? Well, they kind of like this part of maybe they don't they're not going to be a surgeon, but they like sur- that doesn't happen with people typically anyway. In general, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be been, I, I don't know about you, but if I had someone helping me with that kind of guidance when I was young, I, I mean, My I probably wouldn't be here. My student loan wouldn't be so My, high. I wouldn't have any student, <laughs> if I, had, well, believe me, I, didn't, I wouldn't have any student loans at all because I would have said, I, I obviously don't need to, because probably I'm best suited to be like a groundskeeper, frankly. <laughs> I have no, that's, that's about it. Um, okay. So what, one of the things we're going to talk about and I want to get to a little later is the historical, the sort of the structures that have been built up to address this. But I, I want to at least stay in the in the moment because most of our episodes of Punching Out are fairly pessimistic and mm-hmm. and, and somewhat cynical, mm-hmm. and it's and it's for people just experiencing work. Whereas here we're looking at people who are, who work itself is an experience that has to be had in a different way and understood in a different way. And and you guys are both very optimistic, which <laughs> is well, it's actually good because you work with. Ad- I mean, this is this is one of those examples of here's an example of how we can think about this and talk about this in a way that's actually helpful. So I would like to get to the historical stuff, but first let's take a short break and we will come right back. 
Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Okay, welcome back. Thanks for listening. Um, I have Johnny and Charlotte here in the studio, and we were just uh, talking about what I think is extremely positive, optimistic, and rightfully so. There is good work being done. Uh, you all are involved in good work, and, and it, it is actually important to recognize that. And so, Charlotte, you mentioned Wegmans being a good employee. You, that's a first on this show. Most of the time, that's not what people say. But, but in this regard, I think you are right. I think as, as a sort of model for at least, a t- at least having the conversations that are inclusive and and sort of you know and working to help fix this and and sort of address this yes but this will probably be the last (laughs) we we haven't said anything good but um but you know not to not to bring in some darkness and pessimism because i'm not being pessimistic but historically um adults with disabilities forget about the workplace for a moment in general have not really gotten a a very good uh they haven't been treated very well I mean, and it's recent recent history. Yeah, not even that long ago. Yeah, not yeah. not long ago at all. Yeah. So, and and I don't know if you know any of the history, but sheltered workspaces. Shelter was one of the things that when I when I asked you two to come on was to talk about this. It's because it's, I didn't know anything about them, and when I heard about them, I was I was shocked for a lot of a lot of different reasons. In a humanitarian sense, I was outraged, but as a sort of anti-capitalist, I was actually appalled. So anyway, can can you all talk about maybe sheltered workspaces or other means that we've sort of historically and even recent history created spaces that are uh, you know that are work related but maybe aren't the ideal? Um, and and you know uh, you're not alone. Actually, before I started doing the work that I do, I had no clue myself. I was shocked. Um, shocked, and I I'm <laughs> yeah. So I'll get into it a little. You know, I can get into it a little bit and. We could be here forever if we're talking about <laughs> institutionalization and all that's the it, forms. That's the word I was yes. looking for, yeah. Um, and I'll try to narrow my, my <laughs> focus and scope to, to employment settings in general. Um, but when we talk about segregated work, I think it dates back to the 1800s. But really, with the New Deal, for, uh, FDR's New Deal, that's when the payment of sub-minimum wages was permitted by law. So um, it was included in the New Deal that you could pay people with disabilities below the um, minimum wage established by code. Um, in the and that is kind of where the sheltered workshop subminimum wage system that began. Long ago, that, that and long that was ago. the New Deal, which Fair was supposed to be the, the the uplifting thing. Well, right. and it you know everybody was losing their job, so it was really viewed as a as a mechanism to keep people with disabilities engaged in some type of work. And and when you look, at, you can probably talk more about this, but but subminimum wage, you you are paid so. A uh, person without a disability would would do a job um, and see how long it takes you to do that job, and then however long it takes the person with a disability to do a job, they're paid the proportion of. Am I making yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah. So there, it's it's scaled in Based proportion to the productivity. Correct. So, so you could be paid pennies if it's taking you forever, and it, it has nothing to do with your skills and abilities, but it's but it's all tied to productivity. So it started then as as kind of with good intentions, I guess, but it, what has happened is that people are getting, s- it's not a pre-vocational really, 
and this is when I'm going to start to get myself in trouble. Um, <laughs> okay. it's, it's really not, it has not turned into a pre-vocational transitional service as it was intended. People aren't moving from workshops to other more, less integrated settings and, and they're just getting stuck in these sub-minimum wage workshops um, what for what their whole lives. They're called, uh, it's like a destination. So mm-hmm. instead of it being a step along the way, for someone, it ends up being the place that they spend the rest of their working lives. Um, and they, it's called no. a time study. So like, what, yeah. what they'll do is they have a person without a disability come in, do the job for half an hour, time them. If they can get this 30 of something put together in half an hour, um, that's 60 in an hour, and then they just pay people proportionally. So if we only get 20, you're getting a third of what minimum wage would be. Um, it's, you know, yeah. I, yeah. And it was th- this was a new deal though that this this began with that because I'm 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 astounded because we often and I think it's mistaken and this is a good example of why it's mistaken to sort of fetishize the New Deal as this fantastic progressive program, which it it, it yeah but the it was necessary to have a New Deal because of the crappiness of the economic situation to begin with that was caused by people like employers and industrial in industrialists and so it's 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 a kind of a so yeah and so if you're you know you're you're looking at the timeline the 70s and 80s universities started doing research you know if if, can people with disabilities be successful in less segregated settings and so you know task analyses and things that really do help um with integration and and success in the workplace They've been around for 30, 40 years. Um, and, you know, you you said that you wanted to talk a little bit about the ADA. You know, that as a bill, a federal bill, um, had to do with integration and inclusion across domains. It wasn't just an employment-related bill. Um, yeah. And uh, in the employment world, we talk a lot about Olmstead, and and it was in the Olmstead who the archi- the designer, <laughs> not <laughs> the person who designed Mount Hope Cemetery in Central Park. No. Oh, okay. The, the Olmstead Act, and it has to do with the the least segregated environment, correct? Least restrictive, least, in, least, yeah. least yeah. restrictive yeah. environment. And yeah. even that had to do with residential settings, not necessarily employment. But but there has been some Department of Justice cases that have said, well, actually, Olmstead does apply to employment settings as well. We want to look at non-discriminatory settings for everyone. I've always found the term least restrictive space difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. It feels like a double negative. Mm -hmm. It's it's not, but it just... What is a least restrictive? I always was like, what does that mean when it's a least restrictive? Like, what's the, is there a most restrictive? So you yes. get the most restrictive space and the least. Shouldn't it just be non-restrictive space? Is like, Well, wh- I think wh- it, it'd be a good place here to kind of describe what a shelter yes, workshop please. looks like. You know, so um, it really is ex- almost exactly what you would expect. A giant warehouse full of folks with developmental disabilities sitting around a table and working. And it's all people with developmental disabilities with a few staff kind of interspersed on a giant floor of a warehouse um, working. Some people working quickly, some people not working quickly. Um, and people just really more, it just feels like a giant warehouse house full. Of, so when they talk about it being a segregated environment, it is segregated um, to the extreme. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very obvious when you're walking in what's, you know, it's uncomfortable. The first time I walked in, I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I can't believe this. Totally <laughs> uncomfortable. Have you seen the film Bottom Dollar? Um, I recently saw it, and it is fantastic. And, it, it, I mean, it brings life to it, kind of 
what you have bottom just dollar. Yes. Can you tell us about that? I'm so I mean, it's a film, and I. I, I Is it a documentary? Yes. I guess? Okay. And, and it <laughs> travels across the country, interviewing people who have been in sheltered workshops and wow. ask them about their wages and kind of the work that they were doing. And you know, I think you know, there's workshops that were having you put stickers on a bottle and then they would take it off and then you would redo it again. So, you know, it's not even meaningful work if they're redoing, undoing what you've done. Um, I, I don't no. think that is as true anymore. Maybe that was an example given from 20 years ago. But Well, it is true that they have contracts. So the way that they work is that there's basically, you know, an agency. I'll use um, the ARC, for example, um, and ARCworks. They get a big contract from a company to do some kind of certain specific um, manual labor yeah. task that's done in mass by all these folks with developmental disabilities. Um, if they run out of contracts, and they do from time to time, sometimes there's not work for people to do. They're yeah. still going to um, the sheltered workspace and not D doing just anything. Standing yeah. around. Yeah. And I, uh, so it's wow. so funny. My my uncle who owns a business, and I will not get into the specifics, but his wife was saying to me, "Oh my gosh, we partner with this agency, and that's how we get our papers shredded. This this agency does it." And I was like, "They pay them like five cents an hour to shred your paper. <laughs> like I don't know how to dial myself back in, but I'm gonna try how, because I how love can you. you. Yeah, I know, well, but right. still, but it's, it's, no idea. He had no well, idea, and that's I think you know you're saying." I had no idea about this. I think people have no idea well, what's going on. One of our one of the episodes we did a, f a few months back um, was about prison labor, mm. and in a very similar fashion, it's very that similar, that yeah. sort of piecemeal, like ma you know, very menial and very. Uh, both of these things are very quantifiable tasks, right? There's not there's not a lot of nebulous stuff. It's right. how much you do, how much you, it's quotas, it's it's things like that. And I just started talking about domains, so you know we're uh, we're talking about employment, but I think health is directly linked to employment, mental health, um, general wellness, and you know yeah. when you're in this type of setting for 30 years, the regression that happens, years, you know, it. J I just I just think it being a destination right. rather than a step. You know, the thought process behind it. Let's teach someone about some of those soft skills that we spoke about, showing up to work on time, doing those <coughs> kinds of things. Those are good things. And I think in practice, in thought, in theory, um, if it really truly were just a step along the way, that this was like a hiccup in a, a one yeah. and a half year process, okay, but um, that's not the case. You know, mm -hmm. I worked with a gentleman um, and helped him find a job and he had been at ArcWorks for 25 years. Wow. He had been there, that's yeah. crazy. We talk about day programming, and I've you know read some stuff about you know parents want a place where they know that their adult child yep. is going to be yep. safe, yep. and so really that's what this is. That's actually really that's the same thing in, in after school <coughs> programs. A lot of parents are it's like I don't care about the curriculum or whether there's some structure. Is it safe? Can my child have some social time? Most of the time, it's can they let off steam? And I don't know if that's the, you, got, you know we haven't mentioned this or anything, but. Adults with disabilities, some are fully independent, some are not dependent in, in almost every aspect of their lives, depending on their disabilities. And does that, do, like, do parents have a role in any of this? With I mean, you had said they... Yeah, and actually in 2013, the Democrat and Chronicle did an article on sheltered work um, and sheltered workshops because... There was a big to-do about the state making this plan to eliminate sheltered workshops, mm. and... Um, 
to my horror, I hated the article. I was so frustrated <laughs> oh, after yeah. reading it. It really was just full of parents that were just afraid. And I just think it had mostly to do with lack of understanding. That that will lead me to my now I'll get on my, my socialist high horse here. <laughs> because if our if our collective objective in the world was to make sure that everyone around us is cared for, these kinds of conversations would be different. Definitely. Right? And and there is look it, uh, this coincides with something that I'm also working on, which is about sort of this post-capitalist view where, like, work, the kind of work we're talking about, we don't have to do all the work we do. We we are actually – our labor is unnecessary in many respects. A lot of our jobs are not necessary. They aren't. I mean, not ours uh, – mine is. It has to be necessary. But, <laughs> but, but the point is these, these kind of things bring up other discussions. And, and you know, my background is human development, and I, I actually take a, a long view historically, not just individual life course. And recent – you know, I was an archaeology major. I did many excavations when I was young. I love archaeology. I still read it adamantly. Every night I'm reading art, new, news articles. And one of the things that's come up recently is they have been finding more and more – now that they can do better genetic analysis – a lot of a lot, and I'm talking back Neanderthals. I'm talking, you know, forty to a hundred thousand years ago. People with severe disabilities living to be old. Now, as you know, if you have a really severe physical disability, survival is tough, even in a Western modern context. These are people who are living as hunter gatherers. It is clear evidence that they were taken care of by people. That they live to be sixty years old with like with crippling disabilities, so I feel like the socialist in me thinks, well, shouldn't caretaking be number one? Right. Well, and I think it has to do too with just isolation. We talked a little, like, just do it for a second about isolation. And I yeah. think that um, if you're living in an isolated, you know, you're you're not a member of your community yeah. in general, uh, both work and just. You know, do you know the guy that uh, works at the drugstore that right. you go to every day? Are you friendly with him? Do you have the ability to get there? Um, all of those kinds of things lead to poor health. Um, and just now we're starting to kind of look at things a little more holistically instead of just as a, from a medical perspective, yeah. a medical model, and, you know, kind of a little bit broader. Charlotte, you mentioned health. You were talking about health. What, what, what were you going to say? Were you going to say any more about that? Because th the mental health aspects aside, the well-being aspects aside, and the physical, it's the holistic picture. It's more than just the one thing, right? Yeah, um, and, and I'm such a data person sometimes, and I don't know <laughs> the research related to this, but, but I just see, um, you know, some of the, the students that I work with and, and teachers will come and say, this is a totally different person. And I got to think that just being integrated and included in their, you know, in yeah. general society it can't, it is nothing but good. And, and, it's, and the, the interesting, and you all know this because you, you actually are in the field doing work. What it takes to change those kind of things are often very simple. Like with kids in, in after-school programs, again, and even in daytime school programs, saying hello to a kid coming into a program is the difference between the kids. Forget behavior because behavior is a thing they care about. But it's a difference between their own perception of their value in the world. And when kids, when someone says, hey, Jose, how are you doing today? And then you – and let them answer – and then respond as a conversation that works wonders just to have a basic sense of our usness and our weeness, not isolated. Right. And the more that the more that we're out there and doing that, people that are in the field, the more comfortable the public at large gets. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, I work with a gentleman who uses a wheelchair. 
he has his bachelor's degree in social work. He, um, but he has a pretty significant physical disability. All the time when we're out, we're doing things. Yeah. He's smart, funny, and all this different. But people all the time will address me um, oh, and ask yeah. me, like, we'll oh. be out to eat, and they'll say, well, what does he want? Yeah. And I'm like, I, I don't know what he yeah. wants. You know, ask him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, people um, people will speak loudly. I have a friend who's uh, cerebral palsy, and he's he's in a wheelchair often. Um, when he travels, and he travels and lectures all over the country, and he's always that's what he gets all the time. This right. this this condescending, infantile infantile talking, yeah. asking questions like, "Do you need help?" Like in a and he's perfectly completely intelligent. Has he could, and right. and that's what he gets because of the wheelchair yeah. because right. of the the. I have two thoughts. So my, you know, one of my teacher friends recently, so this school year, called and said, you know, my, my district is really pushing tracking. They want a low math group and a high math group, and they want to track and blah, blah, blah. And the high flyers are really struggling because the low ones are. And I'm oh, like, oh, that's the. It drives me nuts. And standard. Right. Uh, look, first, okay, let's, I'm sorry. I'm going to go on one quick rant about math. <laughs> Most people don't need math past fifth grade for to be honest like Very most true. of us yeah. it, uh, yeah. really even th at this point fourth grade whatever you don't need it for most people so the fact that it's a measure of anything that has uh, that's anything other than just a simple instrumental thing is crazy to me um and tracking oh and uh, the benefits that come with different abilities and teaching and thinking <laughs> about things and i'm like this just makes me yeah rage but my other thought is i took i went to D.C. recently with a big group, um, and we had a woman using a wheelchair, and I was calling a restaurant to make a reservation, mm -hmm. and I said, "Is you know, is your restaurant accessible? Uh, oh, yeah, we have a, we have an elevator. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Oh. And, and shame on me. I, I was like, they're saying yes. They must have gotten this question before. I'm just, you know, going to take them for what they say, and that's where we're going to go. Can you take 20 people? Yeah. So we go there. They don't. She has to go through the kitchen to oh. get to the bathroom. Oh, and I—it just it, like that's the back back door bathroom. I have a—I have to top this story. <laughs> I was at—I was at the U.S. Department of Education, the federal oh office in D.C., the center, the center of it, right? Specifically on a project that was to help after-school programs develop more inclusive practices. We had an advisory board. And among our advisory board members were, were adults with disabilities, uh, including the friend, my aforementioned friend. And this was the, this is the, the hub, the heart of, of education in America. We got the room set up, or they, they set it up. We didn't. This is about inclusion, I might add. We get there, and my friend comes in, and he can't get through between the tables because they didn't make enough space between the tables. This is the Department of Education for a meeting about inclusion <laughs> that was itself uh -huh. not accessible. So, yeah. So that happened. And then <laughs> so I was like, I'm not going to make this mistake again. So the next next year we go back and I call a different restaurant. Oh, and I'm asking every single question. Is there a ramp in the door, you know, to right. the door? Now you got the specifics. Right. Yeah. And oh, well, no. But if, if you just come, we can drag them in. And then once they're in, it's fine. And I'm like. <laughs> You, you didn't just really just say that to me, <laughs> but you did. Um, so, well, so no, I will never be coming back to your restaurant. Oh God, what what is ac access? Was a access is a term. So we we were going to talk about this. Maybe we can talk about it now. The what are the accommodations? What 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 are the obstacles in terms of accommodations? Because you're right, and I think most people, in my experience, at least when you talk about accommodations, they say, "Well, we have a ramp." Right. That's it. That's our extent. There's a lot of augmentative communication devices. So, like, it's basically like an iPad 
that's uh, equipped that can help a person communicate uh, more clearly. That's one. I mean, there's lots of physical nuts and bolts ones. The 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 uh, difficulty that I ran into was the ones that weren't nuts and bolts. So, like, say someone has is somewhere on the autism spectrum. Um, and the accommodation, the reasonable accommodation that they're requesting mm. is written instructions in addition to verbal ones. Sure. Um, that's reasonable for most workplaces. Sometimes those receive the most pushback in my yeah. experience as opposed to like physically <laughs> right. changing could, a building yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is like somehow way easier than I'm also going to just, hey, oh, yeah, I'll shoot you the instructions make, as well. Making documents 501 compliant or 508 compliant, you know, to, so that they're accessible. I will say this because I worked on federal projects. They are good about making documentation multimodal, making it have compliance so that there's different and and even learning some basic things like when you do a PowerPoint, don't have multiple colors and fonts, don't have like just things like that. Which but but it is I, the first time. I mean, we have we had people at our company who did that work for us. They were they had the, the compliance uh, certificate or whatever, but. None of us knew it. None of us would have ever thought to do that. And I have to admit, I thought, oh, now we have an extra step. Why can't, I th couldn't you just tell me how to do this? Right. But, but w what about some of the other, because we were going to get into some of the, the, the constructive things, but what about some of the kinds of accommodation things that don't happen? What's a, what's a really, what's a big one? Because the instructions and things, like schedules and time, things like right. that must be, for work especially. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, and I, I, going back to the school, you know, yeah. we br brought schools a lot into this. If people don't know how to advocate for what they need on the job or what they need to be successful in life, I, I, you know, what is the role of school? What's the role of public education? I feel like that's a big deal that you need to walk out that door, you know, knowing what you need to be successful. So, so employers aren't trying to figure out what they need to do to help you. You can say, this, this is what really is going to help me. This checklist is what I need to do my job. And I'm going to be yeah. a, a, a fantastic employer for you, but, or employee for you, but this is what I need type thing. So I, that did not answer your question, <laughs> no, but I just but think it's really important. The self-advocacy piece. Well, it, I can, listen, I'm not, uh, I'm not, Technically speaking, I would qualify for some things because I am formally diagnosed with ADHD. As and I am technically, I also have other things. But that's a, I could I could have asked for accommodations, but I didn't because I feel like I didn't need them. Well, and it gets into the duty to disclose, right? Does yeah. a person want to disclose? Well, you know, is it is it do, does a person need a um, an accommodation that really requires disclosing? You know, there are several people I've worked with that they really don't want their employer to know that they have it. a developmental disability. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> oftentimes I would be super hands-off with them. You know, I would help them prepare beforehand. They're going into the interview. Um, any part of the job of a support staff was done outside sometimes mm. of the of the job. Um, I, I found that most employers were pretty good about accommodations for it's the most part. But sometimes they, they get pushed back. And honestly, if they push back too hard... I really started to question whether or not it would be a good place for the person to work. Yeah. You know, are we going to run yeah. into problems here if this is? Well, if, and I feel I feel like in my circumstance, if I had disclosed that early on, I would feel more comfortable. But like, I worked for two years in a company, and there was actually a point when I was like, you know what? I absolutely need to be able to work from home for part of the time because I'm overwhelmed and I'm I'm struggling. But I wouldn't have asked because I would have thought immediately they'd say, oh. I see. You're just being like, you know, which you're being lazy you're being or lazy, whatever, which, right. you know, of course, which I mean, <laughs> I, I was I swear I wasn't being lazy. I was just being. Uh, so are there other things, though, that that are like what, what's the, the the sort of 
dark side of accommodations. Like what? Because we talked last week about this. Actually, in the episode on human resources, we talked about how. In fact, so let me just give you the background of it because it was a great episode. I think they, um, uh, one of our hosts, was on a mailing list, an email list, sir, for human resources professionals. He's not, and it's basically how HR talks about employees to oh, each yeah. other, and. Oh my God! What they said about accommodations was—I I, thought—I I know it wasn't illegal, but it certainly does not sound ethical in any way. I mean, the darks <laughs> without naming the agency. Yeah, um, there were some very real physical things that they needed to do to their space, and I brought it to the attention of the CEO, and I said, if we're going to be working with adults with developmental disabilities, we need to make sure that they can go to the bathroom in a dignified way. They should not have to have a staff go with them if they're capable of doing it independently. Yeah, um, and I received a lot of pushback to be to be honest, because, uh, because of the cost, because it was the building they didn't own, and and I just said, okay, I was like, well, I'm going out, and my job is to advocate um, as a job developer yes. at these businesses and ask them to make a physical change, and I we can't do that here. That's cr- I was like, it's ridiculous. Like, how, how is that even? I was like, how, we're not putting our money where our mouth is at all. Well, you know, on the other hand, as uh, when I was at pr- doing TA with programs, I'd say, look, you accommodate people 24 hours a day. When you walk down the street, someone's coming your way. You step out of the way. You hold a door for someone. Nobody thinks twice about accommodating other people's experiences in the world. Why is it different when it's somebody with a disability? It's it's accommodating like you do every time. I think it gets back to work, like just being all about productivity and put your nose to the grindstone. And you know, <laughs> and, and and you know, yes, maybe you're working in a group, but um, it can be very individualistic instead of like a coll- collectivistic thought yep. process. Well, you yeah. know? I mean, so. look, we, we're in silos. We work in separate desks, separate cubicles, separate offices, separate. I mean, we, you know, that again, we talked about that. This last, this is a great episode. <laughs> and I think just the unknown associated with cost. You know, I think. Research has been done. The typical accommodation, like writing out a list every day, like $200 is the average accommodation it, you know fluorescent <laughs> lights if that's giving somebody a headache change the bulbs like, yeah it's it, but the fear associated with you know i hire this person who in their cover letter said a, they have xyz and you know obviously if that is the stated reason you're yeah. going to get, get yourself in a whole lot of trouble yeah. <laughs> um but, but the fear associated with it and i think i'm not a universal design expert hmm. but designing workspaces, any kind of spaces, the whole world, um, to be inclusive of the different people that we all are is kind of the way we should all and, be thinking. And, mo- and I don't know if this is true, but I don't, I can't think of accommodations that would be made that would actually not, not only would they, they're not going to hinder anybody else's, right. they might actually benefit. Like, people talk about ramps as if the only people who benefit from <laughs> right. ramps are people with wheelchairs. Like, I don't know. Moms with strollers? If, right. I, I'm ev- anybody. Yeah. It's, a, it's not a, yeah. it's, it's a fine practice. Alright, well, I wanna, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going we're gonna to spin into something a little more constructive because we have, we have a lot of things we could say about the ways we can make the world look and work. And so, alright, we'll be back in a moment. <laughs> You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester, 104.3 FM. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. All 
right. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Um, so we were just talking about some of the, I want to say darker side, some of the sort of less savory aspects of obstacles and challenges for adults with disabilities being gainfully and meaningfully employed. Um, but you two work in the field, and you're trying to help change the conditions and change this, the way we think and the way we work and the way the way e employment is experienced for adults with disabilities. So let's talk about the good things. What are some of the what are some of the good things that are happening? What are some of the in, I'm talking about like whether it's policy or or just just a sea change in people's thinking. Good stuff. I mean, I think that people working um, more meaningful jobs is always a good thing. In my experience, that has that has definitely increased, especially as the focus has switched to employment first. Um, and I think there are agencies that are looking at creative ways to help people find meaningful work. Um, so kind of like a collective of people thinking creatively is always going to be better than just a one-off. That, that reminds me of a question I, I meant to ask earlier. So, and, and I don't know the story, but I had mentioned that there, there were some unionizing efforts. To, and I'm just wondering, like, collectively... Um, because there are, look, there are disability rights groups. There are certainly advocates at, at larger collective levels. Um, are there, do you know of any kind of labor-related unions that are specifically for adults working in the workforce with disabilities? I mean, because, the, you know, one of the main points of, of organized labor is, of course, having collective bargaining, but also having collective protection so that you're not taken advantage of, for instance. And I know with the sheltered workspaces that there was a union, and I don't remember which had, which had tried to unionize specifically because those workers were being so exploited. Any ideas? Any, how about thoughts? Is that a, something that might have actually be useful in the world or just I, curious? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> I mean, I think that anytime you can kind of use your power as a group uh, in employment, that's always going to be a good thing. But are there are there like organizations statewide or, or nationally that are specifically focused on helping advocate support? I don't know. I mean, locally, we uh, uh, yeah, I, locally. it's broader than just employment, I, I, and so mm -hmm. it's not the collective bargaining in, in, in the employment sense, I guess. But you know, Center for Disability Rights. Um, was back and forth to DC with the um, healthcare repeal stuff that was going yep. on. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I do think there is some collective work going on, uh, and I'm, it's not to say that what no, you're no, ex de describing doesn't exist. I'm just not aware. It, of it may be. I mean, I know. I think of places like the Worker Justice Center, and I don't know if they actually do anything like this. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of like self advocacy groups. Sannies, uh, mm -hmm. self advocates of New York State, and work with several folks that are part of that group. Um, also, APSE, um, A-P-S-E, and I, the, the acronym. Association for Professionals of Supported Employment? It, it, it is, yeah. Um, so that has more to do probably with people Prof working in the yes, field. Professionals. Um, mm -hmm. But there is a lot of work um, by agencies to kind of utilize that power, I guess I say, of like, um, testimonials and helping businesses see the value in hiring a person with a disability. And re recently in New York State, um, the New York Business Leadership Network um, was re-engaged a couple years ago. So that's businesses signing on to say that they're going to um, have, a, have a commitment to hiring people with disabilities. So back to the, what you had said about the professionals. So how do professionals get trained or where, uh, you know, where, where does one learn or take a course, let's say, about this. Cornell actually um, does a grant, um, and they teach supported employment across the state. And so mm -hmm. there's 
Uh, they teach job coaching, job development, um, you know, all across the state. And if somebody wants to work as a job coach or a job developer, it's pretty much a, a requirement that they have to go through this series of courses. Oh. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, the APSI you were talking yeah. about, there's a, there's a certification you can go through um, some co coursework and a test at the end to say you're, you are certified and you've proven your knowledge to be an effective job coach. Um, and, you know, kind of the, the well, quality of that is in... Because I know, I mean, it, and I'm just thinking about my own experience in graduate school and, and even teaching courses like I taught in human services. And, and this particular sort of area is not, I mean, I didn't teach it, certainly. And um, I just wonder where are there... Is there, can, you know, uh, how do people become, how do people get to where they do the things you're doing? You know, I think that it's a lot of times people fall into mm -hmm. that job. I worked yeah. in human resources. I worked with people um, and helping them get a job at an agency for a long time. And there was a grant funded position as a job developer to go out and mm -hmm. meet with businesses and help people connect. And so I just, I took a chance and I said, yeah, hey, that sounds like a cool job. I want to do it. A lot of people that work in supported employment, I think. Yeah, find their yeah. way there. Yeah. I mean, are there no graduate. I mean, do you get a do you get a master's degree in rehabilitation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Access VR is a state agency, um, and the vocational rehab counselors there have masters in yeah. rehab. I think because uh, you know, I just wonder because I know that in the human services fields in general, um, you know, employment is difficult because the pay is so low. It's dissuasive, especially because the people who tend to look towards those jobs are also socioeconomically disadvantaged, and so you know it's not it's not appealing to earn what a home health care worker makes for people who are trying to not you know to get out of that bracket, so to speak. Um, what about all right? So I'll switch it to to more specific accommodation -y things. So you had talked about some of the assisted uh, universal design for for learning um, and some of the sort of adaptive technologies. What are some of the cool? What are some of the, so if if our audience knows nothing? And they're interested in learning about the kinds of ways that we construct better spaces. Go, you have. Uh, let's talk. Hopefully, right. <laughs> There's so many. There. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to think of uh, some. I know. I asked a really big question. What's right. the best thing in the world? Just, just go now. Go. <laughs> well, I, and it's. Like, I feel like these things. It's, there's no cent maybe there is that I'm just not aware of it. No central way where you can like find out about all the cool things. There is the Job Accommodation Network. It's a federally funded um, disability resource accommodation network. So you can go there and say, you know, I am a person um, with autism, and you know, what are some typically used accommodations? And so you can find stuff there. Um, assistive tech wise, I think you know. Tablets have just changed the ball game. Um, you know, task reminders, and um, I think TouchStream is a is a yes. yeah. TouchStream. That's a really cool one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, living and it's more than just employment. It's, it gives you know the ability to live independently right. and you know in your own apartment or home or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. it's just one of the guys I work with um, uses a, a, a tablet. Uh, and he actually programs speeches on there. So mm. he talks to um, other self-advocate groups, like he travels with his local group here in Rochester to talk about um, self-direction, which is he basically is in charge of his own budget. He decides who he hires. He decides what programs he wants to be a part of. He goes around and he gives presentations, and he's literally programmed every word of that 
presentation mm-hmm. into his tablet so he can just hit it as he goes. He speaks to groups of service coordinators and um, other self, you know, people that are interested in self-direction. So it's and pretty neat. That That's, is. Yeah. And I would say, you know, technology is a cost up front. So purchasing a tablet is a couple hundred bucks. But the cost savings that come with, you know, the autonomy and independence when somebody can <coughs> use that to be independent yeah. You know, not trying to put job coaches out of their job, but y- you I can... I am. I think <laughs> they yeah, should I mean, be out well, You can yeah. spread I mean, the wealth. You know, spread yeah. the wealth, and you can make the rate higher, um, so you can pay people mm-hmm. a higher wage, but, you know, but technology is doing some of that job for us. And yeah. technology can't fix everything, but I think that we are just scratching the surface in terms of what it can do and the way it can change well, the system. Well, let's... let's now, now I can go to my capitalist critique high horse <laughs> because I one of the when I was doing my work I was going to the bay area often for programs there now this is silicon valley area and you would think that the schools there are getting the top tech that they're getting that that no they're not getting the top tech um it would co- you know Elon Musk just sent a, a car into space <laughs> for whatever number of millions of dollars how many tablets could be purchased with that or what kind of technology could be what could we invent our technology our te- technological developments are almost always consumer based right yeah. like we're getting drones so that amazon can deliver packages faster we're not actually getting technology and the best we can do is get like alexa or something right. in our house but there's no you know and um for a, a person that i worked with we were trying to look at like dragon text to speech. Mm. Oh, but because, I use that. Yeah, because of his, but because of his very unique um, speech pattern, it just didn't work for him. Mm. Um, and so I started doing a little research on like, you know, if somebody has CP or if their speech is a little bit more difficult to understand, what kind of accommodations or research is being done? And the answer is not really a whole lot yeah. because they, you know, you can't, you can't commodify that <laughs> and make money off of it. So what's the, what's the um, point what, for what's, a company. What's the incentive right. for yeah, a company to yeah. do that? But there has to be some that are, I mean, I know that like places like RIT, at, at schools of, of technology especially, that they are developing different types. I mean, they're not necessarily specifically to help people with disabilities, but they find that these technologies are, there's nothing super cool going on. I mean, I, I'm imagining there's probably so somebody. app developers, you know, when yeah. we would do job coaching and somebody would need um, visual reminders. So say they had a difficult time reading um, we would uh, get an app where we could take pictures and then write instructions right in the app and then send it to the computer, send it to an email, print it out, and like keep those pictures on a keychain that somebody can keep oh, wow. so that they yeah. can take a look at, okay, this is step-by-step, step, and they're seeing the picture of what the next step looks like. Yeah. Um, and that, um, we had some great success with what they called fading, right? So taking a step back. You talked about like, you know, why can't, you know, with with technology, somebody take a big step back um, and do things more independently. And it, yeah. definitely some cool cool stuff. I think self-driving cars is a pretty cool thing that might <laughs> change the transportation that's, barrier. You and know, that's a reality of work. I am not hearing people talk about this, but you're totally right. Because, I mean, I'm appalled by it as a person who's, <laughs> fe- I'm fearful of yeah. that going right. awry. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, transportation's a burden for, I mean, especially for people with disabilities. We haven't even talked about this, but that is the number one barrier, mm-hmm. I think, in my opinion, to people with uh, developmental disabilities. Getting well, to work is that, um, you know, does the bus come when it needs to come? And Can they get to the bus? Um, and what know. happens when the contingencies? Because buses aren't reliable. Right. I mean, you know, it's traveling. I mean, a bus is one thing, but airports. 
paratransit is tough. You know, you, yeah. you miss your, they show up in the back of the building and you're in the front waiting and you do that three times and you're out. Um, you know, I did a, I did a map one time of every, um, all the service areas that uh, uh, Liftline actually reached in Monroe County. And there's a surprising amount of Monroe County that is just not serviced by Liftline. Um, and that person's out of work, you know, kind of out of luck. In Monroe in County. In Monroe County. Oh, My yeah. God. Parts of Greece, um, it, because it's three quarters of a mile off a set route. Um, so there are huge uh, parts of yeah. suburbs yeah. that are further than three quarters of a mile. So it's a supplemental service charge, uh-huh. $8, $16, whatever to get to and from work. It just gets really uh, All right. Crazy. So so now we're, as, we're, as we're getting close to wrapping up, so it, it, what, either of you, whatever, walk us through a day that would look good. What would be like, what would be the, if, if we fixed, every, if everything was right, <laughs> what would it be like in the morning, in the afternoon? What would, what would be, what would we see? It's I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's a, that a person wakes up, um, you know, and they walk out their door and they either walk to their bus stop or take, you know, their, their wheelchair to a bus stop. They're able to get into work. They're greeted in, in a friendly manner mm-hmm. that their, uh, that their work is dignified and meaningful, um, that they're paid fairly. <laughs> my, my wife always says this. My wife always, one of her, I love one of the things she says all the time, which is, and this is a racial, she uses racial justice in this regard and says, look, I think the world will be great when people of color can be mediocre at their jobs and not have to fear losing them. Right. Just like the rest of us, right? Every, I mean, we can, I can be mediocre at my job and I'm, I'm fairly safe. Um, and so anyway. To <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's the same. Yeah, and, and I, we haven't talked about Uber or Lyft oh, or, yeah. you know, and, and people, it, rightly so, hate <laughs> Yeah. Uber for a lot of things, but I think when we're talking about opening the door um, and access, and um, I think you know some some of these types of, of newer I don't know newer things really are changing changing the landscape. So we talked about Liftline and and you know houses being outside of the scope of where you can go. Uh, you know I I've seen people Uber to a bus stop, and that so you know you're paying that little Uber fee, and then you're paying the couple yeah. bucks for the bus so it's not 30 bucks to get to work every day so you know i just think it's these small well, things are changing the ball game it's an example so in this book that i'm reading this book discussion on inventing the future and they talk about how can we use technology in a way that minimizes our effort instead of making max instead of making us work harder that it actually makes us have an easier time and work less or work easier and like I, I am opposed to those technologies of course Uber and Lyft for the for, for their employment for the for the fact that they're basically pushing the envelope of le- more precarity they're just pushing precarity and that's what I, I fear it would be different if they were being done to maximize our well-being in the right. world right, right. <laughs> so yeah. um all right. Well, I think we're. I think we're. I mean, it's positive. I, any last words? Any any good things? I mean, there's. You've mentioned a number of things. Hopefully, people will look into these organizations that you've mentioned. Um, any last? Any last words? I mean, I just like. Uh, I am sunshine and sparkle sometimes, but I just think there really is beauty and diversity, and people just need to. I mean, you know, look at the person for all they bring to the table, not their, you know, not deficits. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'll parrot that same thing. I think that things are, um, I'm always optimistic about work for folks with disabilities. I think that as time goes on, it's going to get better and better. 
Um, but it really does kind of take a village, so to say. Yeah. And as people become more and more comfortable with folks with disabilities living, participating in their own communities, um, the better it's going to be. Absolutely. And if there are people like you guys doing this kind of work, that actually helps make that a thing, right? Because we, what we don't want are people not like you responsible <laughs> yeah. for that kind of thing because we, uh, we've already seen what that's like. So, all right, well, Johnny and Charlotte, thank you very much, um, and we will uh, see you all next time. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>